Welcome to Calvary Live. We are so glad you could join us through our podcast. Here at Calvary, we want you to live life at the highest level through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope today's message will be an encouragement. Good morning. Good morning. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Bless you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Calvary. You've got people all over the world out of this church. I walked into a place of business in Springfield, Missouri, and met a young lady named Caitlin Jackson from Calvary Assembly in Decatur, Alabama. And I said, well, you know, when I asked her where she was from, and she told me, I said, that's one of my favorite churches in the world. I said, George and Phyllis saw you two of my best friends. And then I was down preaching the West Florida District Council, and then in the hotel lobby, there's this lady across the lobby shouted out, David, what are you doing here? And I said, well, who are you? She said, I'm from Calvary in Decatur, Alabama. I'm Teresa Cotton. Her mother was my third grade Sunday school teacher in Tallahassee, Florida. And again, Teresa's here with her husband, Terry, and uh, the Jackson family. They'll be here this service, next service, whatever. And I just find these Calvary folks everywhere, just everywhere. Dallas, Texas, Tulsa, Oklahoma, everywhere, Florida. And then here you are. Listen, you're part of a body of Christ. You're part of a family that is worldwide. You got brothers and sisters you haven't even met yet. There's a few billion of them, I'm telling you. Thank God. We are part of the best thing going. The only thing afloat, and the only thing that's going to stay afloat, stay in the boat. Stay in the boat. Say it. Stay in the boat. boat, Because this boat's going to make it. Some of the others, it's taking on, well, they're leaking. This one's solid. Many of you I have spoken to over the years, but I haven't been here now in about six years. So there's a bunch of brand new folks that I haven't met yet. Have I not met you? Raise your hand. I'll, those are brand new. Brand new. Wow, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, I got to give you a couple of introductory moments. I am probably the most saved person here. Because I'm a preacher's kid out of Pensacola, Florida. And we got saved every Sunday. My dad's favorite sermon was the rapture. Jesus is coming tonight at midnight. And nobody's going. Straight is the way, narrows the gate, and nobody finds it. Two should be in the bed, neither will go. Two will be at the well, neither will make it. When he got through preaching, there was no hope. The only hope he gave us was if you would come to the altar right now, you might have a chance. So he filled the altar. Scared to death. My dad preached against everything, including television. Television, he says, like a commode sitting in your living room, flushing sewage in the minds of your children. So we didn't have a TV. Not even hidden in the closet. We didn't have one. We had to go to the deacon's house to watch TV. (laughs) 
What did we do? We went to church. Probably five times a week. Church. Thank God. So there's about 150 times I got saved. And at 12 years of age, I found a scripture that said, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Say it with me. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallelujah. I said, Jesus. I have called, you've answered, and I'm not going to the altar again for salvation. I will go for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I go to the altar for revival, renewal, repentance. I will live in the altar. But this roller coaster salvation is over. I have nailed my fears of the cross, my fears of the rapture, to the cross of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I was 12. Another thing happened when I was 12. Missionary named Charles Greenaway came to my daddy's church. And he told the story of a 12-year-old boy who had no money to put in the missionary offering at the end of the service. And when they passed the offering pan at the end of the service, this 12-year-old boy took the offering pan and said, Jesus, I don't have any money, but you can have me. I will be the offering today. And that boy took the offering pan, laid it on the floor, and stood up in it. And said, today I am the offering. Brother Greenway said, that was the greatest offering we ever received. A 12-year-old boy standing in an offering pan. When he told that story, I was 12 at Faith Assembly of God in Pensacola. And at the end of his message, when my dad said, now we're receiving the offering for Brother Greenway's missionary ministry. And that offering pan came to me. I said, God, if that little boy can do it, so can I. And I laid the offering pan on the floor and I stood up in it. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, David, you will go to India and spend your life. Twelve years of age, I found my direction. I was on my way to India. And this year, I celebrate 50 years in India. 50 years in India. Now, please, the numbers that I use are not my numbers. They're kingdom numbers. Thousands and thousands of people were involved. But 50 years ago, we had 200 churches in India. Today, we've got 8,000 churches. We have a million believers in India today in a highly persecuted environment. As Pastor George, who's been to India several times and has blessed us so powerfully with his ministry, Madras, the church runs 50,000. The church in Bangalore runs 28,000. The church in Calcutta runs 6,000. The church in Hyderabad runs 6,000. Those are a few places where God has poured out his spirit. But there's a billion, 300 million people in that country, not counting Nepal and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and all over the world. And your missions month is coming up in October. This church has always been an incredible part of world evangelization. You have the opportunity before you today to invest in the next few weeks in the greatest harvest the world has ever known. There's a scripture that we will be putting on the screen in just a moment out of John chapter 14, verse 1, 2, and 3. 
God has a place for your ministry. God has a place for your family. God has a place for your life. Would you read with me these three verses? Read with me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Go back to verse 2 and just stay there for a moment. The King James talks about, in my father's house, the mansions. In other versions, it talks about, in my father's house, there are many rooms. The version I really like says, in my father's house, there's plenty of room. Room for billions and billions and billions. In my father's house, in the next few brief moments, I want to focus on two words, place and space. What is my place and how much space is available? And in verse 2 it says, read it there, in my father's house there are many rooms. Would you use the other phrase that I gave you? In my father's house, there's plenty of room, space, because that's where the whole world belongs, is in father's house. What is our place? What is our place? At 12, I felt a distinct direction from God. I was actually an evangelist at 15, at 16, 17. At 17, I graduated from high school and was a full-time evangelist traveling all over America. And I made a vow to God at 17 that I would not marry until I was at least 30. I vowed to God that I would give him every day and every dollar from 17 to 30. God, I want to give it all, every bit of it. I will not even rent a room an apartment. I will not buy anything. I will give every dollar to missions for 13 years. I average giving to missions about $400 a week, $20,000 a year. And this is not the money I raised. This is the money I gave. I didn't have a wife, so I didn't have any bills. <laughs> didn't have any kids. Didn't have any bills of any nature whatsoever. God got it all. By the time I third, turned 30, I'd given over $250,000 on my personal income to missions. And then at 30, God brought Beth into my life. I was preaching, and I preached 150 youth camps across the nation. Because <laughs> most of the year I'd be in India, but the summer's we're not good for India, so I'd be back in the States preaching youth camps. I walked on the platform of youth camp in Pennsylvania. 
beautiful young lady was playing the piano. And I said to the district youth director, who's the lady on the piano? That's my type. He said, yes, her husband's leading the worship. I thought, story of my life. The worship leader, Brian Schaefer, became good friends of mine. He and his wife, Beth, during that Ewicks youth camp. They were both 25 years of age, been married four years, who staff at a large church in Philadelphia. We had a wonderful week of youth camp. I teasingly said to Brian, Brian, if anything happens to you, don't worry about it. I'll marry your wife. Now, that was obviously said in humor. I left that youth camp, went back to India for a year. Tragically, six weeks later, Brian Schaefer was killed in an accident. And Beth became a widow at 25 years of age. She stayed on at the church in Philadelphia and took over Brian's role of minister of music, minister of youth, church of 500 people. She was already the principal of the school, so she had three full-time jobs after Brian's death. For two years, when she left that church two years later, they hired three men to take her place. Women are valuable. We're worth about one-third of a woman. Sometimes a little less. God is blessing Phyllis in powerful ministry now. So when I saw George this morning, I shook his hand and said, Welcome to the committee of men married to fierce women. Welcome to the committee of men with powerful women ministers. I knew nothing of the things in Beth's life for a year until I got back to the States. And someone told me, and I phoned Beth. I said, I'm so sorry. How are you doing? I'll never forget her answer. She said, there's sadness, there's grief, but there's peace. Brian belonged to God, not to me. I don't even belong to myself. I belong to God. And I'm illustrating this from my own 12-year-old experience. Brian and Beth were both in the offering pan. When you put your life in his hands, as the brother said this morning, you're no longer the owner of your life. You're the steward of your life. Your life is in his hands. Now, that's not an easy place to be at times because we want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to feel like we are designing our own destiny. But that's not God. God has plans that are far greater than anything you would ever dream of. God's plans are incredible. I had no ulterior motive when I first started talking to Beth. It was just I cared about what had happened to her, and we were friends. But as the days went by, the friendship strengthened. There were 200 phone calls that year. After a year passed, I was praying. I said, God, I'm 31 years old. I've given you every dollar and every day for 13 years, and I'm willing to continue. 
if that's your will, but if you ever want me to get married. And for the first time, I asked a specific question. What about Beth Schaefer? And when I asked that question, God spoke clearly to me and said, she's the one. First, it was at 12, now at 31. Two major directions of my life. I got up from prayer and called my dad. I said, I'm getting married. He said, to whom? I didn't know you were going with anybody. I said, I've never gone with her. What is she like? Wonderful. What does she look like? Beautiful. But I haven't seen her in two years. And the last time I saw her, she was married to somebody else. He said, I'll be praying for you. I hung up with Dad and I phoned Beth. I said, could I take you to lunch tomorrow? I was in Dallas. She's in Philadelphia. And I'm leaving for India that night for six months of crusades. But I felt like Naomi said to Ruth in Scripture, after she and Boaz had a conversation, Naomi said, he will settle this tomorrow. Just give him a day. He will settle this. And I thought, okay, we're going to settle that. Because I was leaving the next night for six months in India. I flew to Philadelphia next morning because Beth said uh, she had agreed to go to lunch with me. I took her to lunch our first date and proposed I said, I know this is going to sound strange, but I prayed through about it. It's God's will. I love you, and I'm going to marry you. She smiled and said, you're entitled to your opinion. She was not impressed. At least she acted that way. I said, I'm not trying to put you in an awkward position, but I'm leaving tonight for India. I'll be gone for six months. And I just wanted you to know how I felt God had spoke to my heart. And I want, to, I want to write to you, and I do not want you to write me back. I need to write and build a foundation beneath you that you can learn to trust again since Brian's death. So I flew to India that night and wrote her every day for six months, 180 letters in 180 days. And this is from a person who doesn't write. But I learned to write. Six months later, I flew straight back from India to Philadelphia our second date, I said, what do you think? She said, this is so unusual, but I believe God is in it, and I will marry you. I said, amen. I will not put you under pressure. Take all the time you need. But 10 weeks from now, you're going to schedule to be back in India. <laughs> Thousands of people will come to the Lord in those meetings. And if you don't go, I'm not going to go, and all those people die and go to hell. <laughs> but there's no pressure on you. Nine weeks later, we're married, and a week later, we're in India. And that was 43 years ago. Come November, come December the 22nd. There's a sad following week. We married one week when we landed in India. And I want to be careful what I say because with Facebook and Internet, I have to be careful how we say it these days. She said, well, the first night, we've been married a week. 10,000 people in this meeting. 
And I said, I want you to meet my wife as a widow. And the crowd went berserk. He married a widow. 10,000 people talking to each other saying, he married a widow. He married a widow. The crowd was berserk for 10 minutes. When he finally settled down, we went on the service afterward. The leader came to me and said, David, nine years you've been with us. And you still don't understand that in this culture, an orphan is a curse. He has no identity. An orphan has no place. He has no identity. He is cursed. But worse than an orphan is a widow because she is blamed for the death of her husband. And she has no identity. She has no place any longer in society. She, her presence, is a symbol of death. And you have married a widow. And in our culture, no one would marry a widow. And a widow would marry no one. Their life is over. It would be better if you never publicly stated again that she was a widow. I said, well, I'm speaking to the pastors tomorrow morning. Always oh, said, you can share with them anything. I stood in front of 500 pastors the next morning, and I took the scripture, and I said, here's what God says about orphans. God says, I am the father of the fatherless. I have invaded the human family. I've invaded human society and declared that that you called a curse. I call my own child. I am a father of the fatherless. I give them my identity, my heritage. It's theirs. And then God goes on and says that I am the covering, the defender, the provider, and the protector of the widow. I take the widow as mine. The orphan and the widow. And you go back through hundreds of scriptures because this was the pattern for orphans and widows for thousands of years. And God says we will break that tradition because I myself am their father, their husband, their provider, their defender. I am theirs. Hallelujah. I am their inheritance. I am their identity. I give them a place and space in my life. As I was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on that audience of 500 pastors. And literally the presence of God was so heavy, every man in that building fell on their faces. And for an hour, we lay on the ground weeping over the curse of society that robs people of their inheritance and their dignity. When the spirit began to lift and we began to stand under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, pastors began to say, from this moment, the orphan 
will be honored in our church. We will embrace the orphans because they're God's, therefore they're ours. We will make a place for them. And they said, and the widow no longer will be a curse in our churches. She'll be the most honored woman in our churches for God is her identity. Something happened that day. And that was 43 years ago. I think God knew that in, after planning churches and all the things we were doing, that there would come a day when the value of the girl child would suddenly emerge in a new way. 22 years ago, in a teen challenge center, in Bombay, and we have books on the table out there that tell us this story so beautifully. We went to the red light district of Bombay and discovered 100,000 girls who had been trafficked, enslaved, sold for an average of $200 a piece at the age of 12 or 13 and become enslaved in the brothels of that city. I walked through that city 22 years ago in the middle of the night, looking at the faces of little girls, broken, shattered, their dreams were gone. They were walking dead people. And God said, this is where I want you to plant the church, in the darkest place you can find. That's where the light shines the brightest. We opened a ministry called Project Rescue. It was strange at first because we were telling the story and people were sending checks to Springfield, Missouri to Assembly of God of World Missions for David Grant's prostitutes. You can imagine the little ladies who opened the mail down in Central Mail <laughs> going these checks for David Grant's prostitutes. <laughs> and so they asked me, what's going on? I said, it's not my prostitute. It's God's daughters. It's God's people that have been defamed and destroyed. And God has set a pattern to rescue them and restore them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a new chapter opened. Our daughter Rebecca was 16 years old when we started this. She was involved in the ministry to the 16-year-old girls in the brothels. Came back to Evangel University and took a degree in education and in theater. Went on to Missouri State and did a master's degree in using theater as therapy for abused children. And began to use art and music and drama and dance to deal with the trauma of their lives. And at 24 years of age, she went to India as a single girl to work in brothels with little girls who had been rescued out of the sex trade. 24 years of age. She gave four years of her life. And then God brought Tyler. and She and Tyler are there now. Our daughter Jennifer had worked, and both our girls had worked with the Mother Teresa in Calcutta. When Jennifer graduated from Evangel University with a degree in nursing, she went back to Calcutta to work with Mother Teresa's home with a destitute and dying. Came back to the States and became a nurse and a director of nursing at 29 years of age in a major hospital in 
And then God spoke to her and she said, I am resigning my job to come into Project Rescue to work with Project Rescue. She said, I know that what I'll be making about one third of what I make now, but this is God's plan for my life. What I'm describing to you this morning is God's place for you. God has a place for every person in this room. This is not necessarily a youth camp where I usually speak to teenagers and saying God has a plan. I'm speaking to 60-year-old people today saying God has a place for you. I'm speaking to 70-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 30-year-olds and saying you may feel like you're caught up in a lot of things in life, but God has a place. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. God has a plan. God has a place. God has a design for your life. Find it and fulfill it. Don't miss out. Life is so brief. So both of our daughters are involved in missions. Both their husbands and all four of our grandkids. Now that's the most wonderful thing. His grandkids. That's the best. And when I call Pastor George Sawyer, we talk about grandkids. We don't talk about a lot of things. We talk about grandkids. <laughs> I love it. God is a God of the future. Generations. God has plans for Calvary. And I have the joy of standing here today and say, this is rescue day. This is a day of two things that's going to happen. Number one, God's going to show you your place. Number two, God's going to show you there is space in your life for his plans. Your place is on your knees. Your place is in this altar. Your place is in worship. Your place is in intercession. Your place is in investment. Your place is to invest your life. That's my place. I'm an intercessor. I'm an investor, and I am in the offering pan. In a few moments, I'm going to invite you to, that the Spirit of God speaks to your heart. I'm going to invite you to find a place in this altar in just a moment and stand in this altar and say, Father, the offering pan is here. Find my place. Probably the most important thing in me finding this word place. I go to prepare a place for you. On the table outside, there's a book called Beyond the Saw Curtain. It's available for a donation of $5. And if you don't have the five, it's yours free. Beyond the Saw Curtain. There's a second book. It's more of an academic book, but it's a powerful thing concerning the balance between the cup of cold water and the name of the Lord. Cup of cold water is good, but without the name of the Lord, nothing's going to change. The name of the Lord is wonderful and miraculous. The name of the Lord, but a cup of cold water is good to go with the name of the Lord. Courageous compassion. Best, most recent book, Confronting Social Injustice, God's Way. There's a book that's not out there, but I'm leaving with a pastor, and we can get other copies. It's called Hands That Heal. 
international curriculum to train caregivers of trafficking survivors. Hands that heal. What is your place? Your place is to allow God to take your hands and make them healing hands. Hands that restore, hands that protect, hands that deliver, hands that rescue. Hands that say, there's power in my hands. Power to hurt or power to heal. Power to bruise or power to bless. Both those powers are in my hands. Would you lift your hands right now and say, Lord Jesus, I give you my hands. Take them. Let them never bruise. Let them bless. Let them never hurt. Let them heal. My community, my nation, my world, and the little girls around this globe, these hands will rescue them. These hands will bring healing to them by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Put your hand right over your heart and say, Lord Jesus, there's a place in my heart just for you. Please, Jesus, come feel that place. With my heart I believe. With my lips I confess. Jesus Christ is my Lord, my Savior, my healer. Come, Jesus. Come, Jesus. Fill my heart. Heal my body. Heal my spirit. Make me yours. Lift your hands and say, Father, I surrender. All that I am, I surrender. Take my life and use it for the glory of God. Two things I have to say to you right now. You put your hands down for a moment. One of my favorite places is the homes of hope. We have one that's specially for little girls with AIDS. A special home just for them. When I go there, a little girl swings the door open and says, Uncle David, come. I want to show you my place. My place. She'll take me by the hand and lead me to her cot and say, this is my place. This is my bed. Nobody sleeps here but me. This is my bed. And this is my closet. This is where I keep my stuff. This is my place, Uncle David. This is my place. And I stand there with tears of joy running down my face. As you will read in Beyond the Soul Curtain, most of the girls we rescue don't even know how old they are. They don't know when they were born. They don't even know their name. It's a name someone gave them. And when we rescue them, we start all over again. And we allow them to choose their own name. And choose their own birthday.
because they don't know. They came out of a world where they had no identity. So we choose with them a new identity. God wants you to be a part of giving a new generation a new identity. A new identity. Rescuing is the easiest part. Restoration is the hardest part. That's why this service is so important. The worship, the intercession, the offering, the tithe. This is where you change the world by your actions. Making a place. Last year, Project Rescue touched the lives of 50,000 little girls. And I don't have the time. Someday I'll get some stuff in your hands. Europe, Africa, Asia. In two weeks from now, Beth, and I'll be in Bangkok, Thailand. Hands at heel. Beyond the soil curtain. Not what's behind the soil curtain. What's beyond the soil curtain. You've heard this story, but I have to... Shared in closing. A little seven-year-old was brought in from a brothel. Her mother died. And her mother's last request, please give my daughter to Project Rescue. Seven years old. Arms and legs big as my finger. Like sticks. Malnutrition disease. This beautiful little child, skin and bone. Our doctor said she would not live but a few weeks. It's too far. She could speak beautiful English. I became her adopted uncle. During the weeks in that home, every free moment she'd come and sit beside me and wrap her tiny fingers around my little finger and just sit there and hold my finger. Every prayer meeting, every time I preach, she'd come. Came time me to leave. I took her in my arms. I said, honey, Uncle David's got to go. I'll be back in a few weeks, and I'll see you then. She said, no, Uncle David, I won't be here when you come back. I will never see you again. Tears flowed down my face. My throat closed. I couldn't speak, cause, except for a miracle. She was right. And then she preached the greatest sermon I've ever heard, and I've told you this six years ago, I think. She said, don't worry about me, Uncle David. I've got Jesus. Never knew a father. Her mother's dead. No one, no family, no re- nobody, nothing. She said, now I've got Jesus. He's all I need. Don't worry about me. I sat down on the floor and walked out and got on the plane. As I flew out of that country, tears run down my face. I said, God, that little girl... Her only hope is you. Every church I went to and I came to Decatur and asked you to pray. I flew back to India, stepped off the plane, and that little girl came screaming down the sidewalk, Uncle David! I swept up in my arms and said the stupidest thing I've ever said. I said, honey, what are you doing here? Stupid. She looked at me and said, Uncle David, Jesus has healed me. I am completely normal. 
and I've been adopted by a Christian family. I got a new dad and a new mom. In fact, it wasn't a new dad. She's, she never had no dad before. She said, I told you I've got Jesus. When Pastor Sawyer says to you today, would you help rescue a girl? Would you help build a home of hope? Would you help make a place for somebody who has no place? Will you make space in your life for the broken and the hurting? Thank you for listening to today's podcast. You can connect with us live each Wednesday and Sunday through our social media pages. If today's message has blessed you, please rate and review us so that more people can hear this message of Christ. Find out more about Calvary on our website at calvaryassembly.org.